let me say in advance, this is not <clears throat> a lesson. It's a discussion in which we will follow normal church procedure in which you are not participating <laughs> when we have a discussion uh, in which we should all participate. But it is uh, a look back in history, a <clears throat> long time back, as you can tell, uh, where we were, where we are, how we got here, what has gone before, what is happening now, and what may happen. And that brings to mind one of my favorite quotations from <clears throat> Abraham Lincoln, which is hidden. I've never seen it anywhere except written on the back of a bench. And a lot of history is like that. It's written on the back of a bench and only is found by those who go seeking, not those who sit, not those who think they have found everything, but for those who keep looking. And here's what he said. If we do not remember history, there will be nothing in the future worth remembering. Now you think about that. If we start out now and build, we are lacking a foundation. So I'm going to stick pretty close, if not rigidly, to manuscript because we've got a lot of territory to cover. I will start first by saying if I were trying a case, I would say this is uh, Exhibit A I'm going to put out. And that is what has happened because this was a Bible that basically we started with, with an open door class. And this is a Bible that I think separates open door from a lot of thinking. A person told me, you are desecrating the word of God by underlining, by inserting, and I've got, for instance, here is a lesson I taught in 63, keeping the notes and keeping the history of all of this, and you're desecrating the word of God. I said, somehow I feel like I'm studying the word of God, and you are worshiping the Bible. And you know, you remember, some of you are too young, but during that season, we had Bible burnings where people were burning, this, had parties to burn this very Bible that I desecrated with study. So somehow there is the division that surrounded us when Open Door was born. It was not Open Door, it was started as the young couples class. Then we were no longer young, it became the couples class. Then we were no longer couples, so it became the open door class. But the mission, as you will see in uh, what I will discuss to follow, uh, has never changed. A lot of facts have changed, but the mission remains the same, and I'll say what it is up inside. That is, when you come into this classroom, you do not check your mind at the door and retrieve it when you go out. You bring it with you because the mission has been, is, and I hope always will be to worship with your whole heart, soul, and 
mind. And too many people want to leave the mind out. Okay. So thanks, my everlasting friends, for inviting me. Oh, can I <coughs> Yeah. And I will say I've been bolted by better people than the ones <laughs> leaving. So, <laughs> so uh, okay. Thanks for letting me t lead at its last session. I won't say teach, it's lead. Somehow it's fitting I do so because I led the class at its inaugural session nearly seven decades ago. And Sarah and I are the only person still in life who sat in that opening session. So we close an era today that we began with the opening of the class. Paraphrasing the great bard, today we come to bury open door, not to praise it. <laughs> but praise for the class will ever remain in that it was done here experiences we have shared here, and depth of love and intellectual depths we have explored here. They will never leave us. Remembering that I taught the first lesson, I believe in 1952, and taught it for the first seven years of the new life of the class, I'm sure some have criticism. But because Sarah and I are the only survivors of that early group, I apply to my unknown critics the surest cure available and announce by one of my favorite presidents of the United States, President Harry Truman, who brought many of us back home by boldly ending World War II. Late in his life, not as late as I am, uh, when questioned by reporters about why he no longer while they no longer heard the terrible criticisms of him that they heard when he left office. I'm going to choose his language. He said, it's simple. I outlived the bastard. Y'all fill in the blanks. <laughs> so, so those who might c criticize my early approach, just remember that. I outlived them, and I have the final argument. In simple terms, the first session nearly seven decades ago was an inaugural session of thoughtful young married couples seeking truth instead of clinging to dogma. And this closing session is a memorial service for the class attended by thoughtful old, some very old members whose lives have been touched by love within the class, but who still seek truth, not blurred by dogma, and who will, for the balance of their lives, be refreshed by undying friendships cemented together here. In short, we do not suggest that we have found the answer, but we do encourage others to do as Jesus suggested, that is, seek and you shall find. Based upon that never dying directive, we early adopted the motto that I mentioned. You bring your mind in with you and you do not 
retrieve it when you leave. <clears throat> An additional directive comes from, I believe, Havel, I think I'm quoting him right, who suggests that we should make friends with those who seek the truth, but avoid those who assert that they have found it. And then from poet Robert Browning, who poetically suggests that our reach must exceed our grasp, else what are the heavens for? So we have been seekers, we have been reachers, we have been finders, but not resting on what we find, we have moved on. In our approach, we offer no criticism of others who allege that they have found it. We simply follow the directives that we do not follow them. The class was born in 1952 in the old Powell House. Who remembers the old Powell House? There are two, okay, well, three, Sarah does. Now that, see, that explains where we've gone. Is that the house where the parking lot is? Huh? Is that the house where the parking lot is? Yeah, it sat about where Firefield Hall okay. now is, yes. Then that's Paul. Okay, that's <laughs> correct. It, uh, the church planned as part of expansion to demolish the house and may have thought by permitting our probing class <coughs> to be housed there, our probing like the house would cease to exist, but not so. During the next seven decades, our class became a moving force in the congregation and the Presbyterian church at large. We urge and still urge that spiritual and intellectual expansion based upon study and not fear was equally required for that expansion. That difference in feeling can best be explained by factual experiences in an actual life. And that was my life, I will touch. My life <coughs> as a small child and young teenager. And the quest was and remains to find personal identification with God as God exists for each individual. In 1932, a six-year-old boy had a horribly frightening dream born from an unthinking teacher during the dark days of the Great Depression. A decade later, the horror of the dream was replaced with promise that came to the same boy, then entering teenage years, filled with questions and not answers, as he sat alone on a rock, you've guessed it, in Turkey Creek. <laughs> Since you have without knowledge of these encounters served with the boy, now grown through young manhood into old age as a member of the open door class, you are entitled to know these aspects of the class during its nearly seven decades of life and the motto of the class, which you have already discussed. In this environment, we cross decades diligently, sought the rich message contained in the Bible, rather than bogging down in arcane language in the Bible. The boy and his wife, Sarah, are the only surviving members. At its closing section, 
we seek to acknowledge Port Robert Browning's wise advice that our reach and our instructions from Jesus to seek if we expect to find. Jesus went further and advised the truth will make us free, free from lingering fears like that of the boy, six-year-old boy who, in whom a teacher implanted fear by instruction <coughs> on the passion. Now the horrible dream, released from the dream, path over which truth-seeking traveled and continues to travel. My terrible childhood dream resulted from some teacher who I believe today would be honored with a label as an evangelical. She described what is referred to as the passion, when the Lord comes in a cloud, seeking all the saved to heaven and leaving the evil behind to eternal damnation. The evil being those who drank alcohol. Dwelling on what seemed to be causing from a came coming from a Christian authority, I had a frightening dream that my beloved father would be separated from the rest of us and condemned to hell, which of course meant eternal torture. Because daddy drank cheap moonshine on a temporary, as a temporary antidote for temporary relief from horrible misery of the Great Depression that prevented his providing food for his struggling family. Moreover, being permanently separated from my father could in no manner be seen as salvation for me, even though the teacher described it as heaven. Instead, it would be eternal torture for me. How could simply designating me as among the, quote, saved, and my father among those going to hell, how could a child handle this apparent truth flowing from a teacher? I lived with that horrible childhood pain of expected separation from my beloved father, even with all his faults, until one beautiful autumn Sunday afternoon in, I believe, 1939 or 1940, when relief came not in a man-made church nor at the feet of another who had found the answer. Instead, that afternoon, as I often did, I alone wandered as I wandered in the surrounding fields and streams and sat all alone in a on a rock in Turkey Creek. There I felt real freedom as I viewed freely flowing water, effortlessly moving over or around hindering rocks and obstructions that sought to impede its flow. In this unstructured setting, I pondered John's enlightened insight that God is a spirit and that we must worship in spirit and truth. How did this comport with the opening verse in Genesis that in the beginning was God? Without effort, I began feeling a connecting link with the, the force moving that water. 
I felt at one with the freedom of the water and with the spirit of freedom within me. Could that connecting spirit within me, within water and everything, be the spirit that John says was there in the beginning? And therefore urge that God is that spirit, and those who worship God must worship in that spirit. Was that the feeling I was experiencing? Could it be the spirit that connected all to all? If so, man had given a name to each spirit that connected all to all. Man gave the name gravity to the energy moving the water and Holy Spirit to the collective spirit that permits me, a, uh, that, um, these, you see, you got products of getting old. Uh, it's a uh, man, uh, spirit to the uh, elective spirit that permits me con consciously to communicate with and seek to understand all that exists. Did John then give the name God to the source of all spirit or energy? Because John affirmatively declares that no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen gravity. Yet that is the force that moves the water and the force that holds all heavenly constellations in place and is mother of and is mother of life sustaining water, pulling it from distant uh, heights through even small streams like Turkey Creek, returning it again through evaporation through those higher extensions to again renew the process or recycling. Could it be that even though no one has ever seen God, that unseen spirit must be in the form of man because male, oh, I'm gonna hold them up if you don't mind. Someday you young folks will get old. Could it be that even though no one has ever seen God, that unseen spirit must be in the form of man because only man can comprehend that which is occurring. Did John mean that instead of being separate spirits, there was only one spirit, and that spirit is God? However man may divide that energy so as to understand it, and that when he, we connect with it, we are worshiping in spirit. Is that what he meant when he said that because God is a spirit, we must worship in spirit and not worship in the form dictated by others? I was beginning to understand the spirit. Is worshiping in spirit synonymous <clears throat> with feeling of the botanist when he plucked a small plant observe its connecting roots and proclaim that everything is connected to everything else. I suddenly felt that the spirit within me would, like gravity tucking the water or around obstructions, 
Guide me over obstructions like poverty, the Great Depression, inadequate education, and all others. We are instructed that no one has ever seen God, and currently no one has ever seen gravity, and no one has ever seen intelligence. Then why did man in some fictional manner create a pre-existent man figure like ourselves, name that figure God, and urge that he lived in male form millions of years before creation of countless universes we view in the night sky. Universes, universes we now know existed millions of years before man and rotating in place by the same gravity that moves water along, distills the water, transfers it back in clouds to uplands to renew its course. The Bible we defend as reverent proclaims that no one has ever seen God, then how could we define God? If God is man, does he appear as the earliest man that first stood upright? as regal leaders of centuries now dressed as they are, or as the man dressed in Wall Street attire. It is therefore irreverent to ask the church, is it therefore irreverent to ask the church and its leaders in view of current knowledge that the earth is only a fraction of the expanding universe to apply, discuss the why and how the anthropomorphic God came to be viewed as the creator and know now how that view came into the mainstream of our worship. Is it irreverent to suggest that it came when mankind knew only a small part of the universe, the earth, and could only question the endless expanse of the nightless sky? It is apparent that they did begin to question and conclude that heaven was out there somewhere and occupied by the Father who created it all. Close studies suggest that writers of John and Luke suggest this. John says God is a spirit in all that is. And Luke, in the beautiful Christmas story we love, suggests the birth of the Son of God in human form. It should not be overlooked that the birth, as told in poetic form, was introduced by, quote, wise men or astrologers, not astronomers or scientists as we know them today. But astrologers were then apparently so, so relied upon uh, as they were so relied upon as to cause rulers to proclaim death to the infant. <coughs> in truth, the astrologers, wise men, did in fact observe strange actions in the sky. I have gone back to my notes of two long ago sessions at Christmas time when I led this class in discussion of this. There we discussed early true astronomers Copernicus and Galileo who discovered that at the accepted time of Jesus' birth there were aberrant configurations of stars and planets in the sky. But of course 
not a brand new star over a hay bed in a stall. But clearly the aberrant configurations of those planets and stars, not discussed here in detail, but discussed at length in those lessons years ago, when, and, and there's a reason for that, attracted attention of those wise men of old. But what happened to those later true men of science who explained the beautiful biblical portrait of the Christmas story? They were excommunicated by the church. They did not see a star over a manger, but indeed did, indeed did see strange configurations in the sky. Poetic description of the same event in which we worship the poetic event rather than scientific reality. Likewise, much later, I believe it was the Church of England that excommunicated one who suggested that the moon had a hard surface. Why excommunicate him? All know the moon has a surface, but the creation story that God created the sun as a brighter light to rule the day and the moon a lesser light to rule the night, everyone knows that light cannot have a surface. And so finder of realism excommunicated and worship of, po of the uh, poetic version. Where, who was disobeying the instruction of Jesus to seek and you shall find? And we all know now we've seen a man land on the surface of the moon when the church excommunicated one who suggested that. Thankfully, Open Door did not excommunicate me years ago when we openly discussed this evolution of faith and finding. And discussing them now renews a conversation with our young son when he was at the age I was at the time of my horrible dream about the God I was supposed to work, worship grabbing from us our father in biblical passion. Going home with me one evening from a church meeting of some sort when children were separated for study or fun from adults seeking enlightenment, both our sons were riding with me, the youngest being about six years old. With no prelude, David, the six-year-old questioned, Daddy, what is the difference between a star and a planet. Oh boy, having just studied this, I gave him an erudite answer. When I finished, he looked at his older brother and questioned, is that right, Stephen? <laughs> this pleased me greatly because it demonstrated that children still seek in order to find. In response, I purchased a telescope and through it, we as a family thereafter enjoyed the rings around Saturn, moons of Jupiter, craters and shadows on the moon, and so forth. May we continue to study and apply, not study to deny. That was and has been the mission of Open Door Class. I also believe this little family scene as we drove along together is probably what Jesus meant when directed that we 
come as little children because children are filled with questions seeking answers. It reminds me of a piece written by an educator close to me when he wrote an article perhaps partly in jest but filled with meaning and some of you teachers may be interested in this. He opined that educators might consider grading children on questions they ask rather than answers they give. Open door would score well under that system because we sought with probing questions rather than dodging with fixed answers. In our discussions, we see that children still exist today, that division still exists today. But should that division separate us or unite us in our study to show ourselves approved? The broader church discussed below appears to be increasingly divided and Sunday school study faltering. Our class set an example that difference may not, cre uh, difference may not create enemies but increases desire to learn and cooperate. Study includes opinions like Paul Tillich, who voiced it is more cogent thought when he declared that God does not exist separate and apart, but instead God is everywhere in everything. Why can't the church leaders engage in conversation about such probing questions? I believe it's failure is due in large part accounts for the noticeable decline in Sunday school attendance. Fundamentally, the division between those seeking and those who had found was our reason to begin a new class that over time became a leading instrument of the church, as we shall see. Jesus also decried empty, quote, form, close quote, religious organizations of his time. And when he faced the two most demanding events in his life, he sought to be alone, to communicate with the spirit within himself, the spirit that Thomas in the biblically rejected gospel, and I suggest some of you might be interested in studying the gospel according to Thomas, in, uh, defined as an inner light. And he did not call it the Holy Spirit. He called it an inner light. I wonder if that's why it was not selected into the Bible. Was it nomenclature alone? When Jesus faced the upcoming perplexing mission of his adult life, that is when he went to the desert, he sought loneliness in the desert. Well, the Bible instructs us that he dialogued with the devil, suggesting the creature was a real creature. We, of course, tend to visualize that creature as the devil we met in childhood, a man with long horns, a tail, and a pitchfork. Is it possible that when facing that decision, Jesus sought to be alone to summon deep, deep, and troublesome questions within himself. Just as in my early years, I spent Sunday afternoons alone wandering wilderness, woods, and creeks, 
observing the larger world of creation beyond my limited horizon of knowledge, but not beyond my questioning mind. Again, in Gethsemane, when Jesus faced death itself, he felt abandoned by God and left even his closest friends and followers. He walked away to be alone, to connect to the spirit embedded within himself, to the eternal spirit in which he and we are irretrievably bound. Through events that immediately followed came his death and birth of the church as we know it. That church was and is one, but perhaps by believing it has found the answer rather than seeking the answer, we have severed the church into many. Across time, I have requested minister friends to enlighten us on the spirit within and to explain how we humanized and implanted into human male form when even the Bible instructs that no one has ever seen God in that form. I have never heard that discussed by those, quote, learned, close quote, in religion, but instead it has become framed into an anthropomorphic God. Y'all know what that is. God created in the form of man rather than man created in the form of God or God in physical human form that for centuries we address as Father. Ministers now obliquely address the, century, uh, the perplexing issue, as does our new church hymnal, by not referring to God as he. I have sought to discuss with ministers and even requested a sermon addressing the subject, but without success. Some of you may have noticed that even our own George Worth, when actually <coughs> quoting scripture, would substitute the word God for the word he, wherever the Bible referred to God as he, thus averting open acceptance of human and masculine form of God, but not going so far as to alienate the evangelicals who tend to worship the centuries ago language of the Bible. Are we thus accepting archaic language rather than con concentrating on rich meaning contained in the Bible? Why do Christians, by worshiping arcane language, refuse to recognize that accumulated knowledge has likely <coughs> overpowered inferior communications of the time that may have obscured the message. Would it be better to retain the central message of the Bible, or is it preferable to retain arcane language and false understanding? In clear early discussions with early Americans, the natives referred to the great spirit, and we referred to the great white father. Again, humanizing God. Why not discuss within the church, and is it discussed in science, 
the millions of years of evolution and man's late appearance in that process? Why insist without discussion that even before the evolution began, the man figure of God existed? John does discuss it, urging that instead of the process beginning with the man, in the beginning was the word or spirit, and that the spirit was in the beginning and remains part and parcel of the evolutionary process and not separate from it. I truly believe that Jesus would urge open discussion of this position because in his teaching he often said words like, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. He told all of us to seek and you shall find. The open door class when it began and still today in it, this memorial service urged and urges you to employ your mind and spirit to seek and you will find. Somehow this process causes me not only to see God in the beautiful nightly constellations, but to recognize myself as a part of that massive and incomprehensible combination of art, science, energy, and spirit, that is God, that is integral to creation. Just as I felt as a young teenager when my own searching spirit urged with the universal spirit of evolving Sunday afternoon wanderings and observing the water of Turkey Creek submitting itself to the same spirit or energy of creation that gave birth to the vast constellations and to me who merged with both. I was then and have since been willing to submit and have submitted my life in the same spiritual and physical energy. So how did this searching by an ignorant teenage boy from Turkey Creek, having developed into manhood and experiencing a feeling of release from poverty and ignorance, and simply remembering water overcoming its obstruction through unseen gravity, have any bearing on birth of the open door class? In 1947, when I entered Emory Law School, Sarah and I were fortunate to get a one-room efficiency apartment in an old house chopped up into apartment at West Peachtree and Lombardi Way, now Art Center Drive, where Midtown Plaza now stands, and only a short block from Presbyterian First Presbyterian. Perhaps more of a release from intense study of law as Wheeler and <laughs> Dale would submit, uh, than anything else, we began attending Wednesday night discussions in a small room led by the young Reverend A. Allen Gardner, who became our lifetime friend even though we would not join the church until I graduated law school and tried to establish a solo practice to make sure we would make Atlanta home. When as the son of my late partner, Ed White, some of you remember, his son proclaimed, I knew I had arrived when I got an office with a window and a seat that didn't flush. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Having gained that knowledge, Sarah and I bought our little house in DeKalb County and joined First Presbyterian Church. Until my religious experience had been, until then, my religious experience had been of doubtful value because of their conflict with that which I thought religion and even Christianity to be. As a boy, as all boys should, I joined Oak Grove Congregational Christian Church in Oak Grove Community on Turkey Creek. It was the only church in the community housed in a white structure with no electricity, water, or heat in a grove of oak trees where Preacher Dollar came one Sunday per month to preach. That was preaching day. And on all other Sundays, we simply had Sunday school but no separate rooms. Different ages sat in different locations in the one-room church. As a young boy, I dutifully joined that church because everyone was supposed to. Dressed in the only white pants or dress-up pants I had, and I was baptized by the preacher ducking me in the water of Turkey Creek, shared with catfish and water moccasins. In the mill pond of the grist mill, where we took our corn to be ground into cornmeal. As time moved by, that baptism, instead of, quote, saving me, close quote, raised further questions. Without detailing obstacles I had to overcome, I enrolled in the small, young West Georgia Junior College near Carrollton with jobs to pay all uh, tuition and expenses. One of my jobs was driving the college bus, and one of the missions of the bus was on Sunday to transport desiring students to their separate in-town places of worship, Baptist, Christian, Methodist, and Presbyterian. To a kid who had known only one church, this within itself seemed senseless. The last church on the route was Baptist Tabernacle. And because it was the terminal point, I parked the bus there after church to reverse the route and retrieve students from other churches. Because I parked the bus at big and beautiful Baptist Tabernacle and for no other reason, I joined that church. The last person to board the returning bus was a very pleasant young brunette named Sarah Davenport, who, as you know, later became <coughs> Sarah Davenport Cadenhead. Again, I was dismayed at what I considered senseless demands made by that church that I had, for convenience only, joined. Even though I had been baptized by a complete ducking in Turkey Creek, the tabernacle did not acknowledge the baptism because it had been baptism, it had not been baptism in the Baptist church. That did not please my fledgling journey into the seeming jungle of Christianity and the church. But I agreed to again be baptized and ducked, if you please, in what I perceived must have been holy water in a little pool inside the church. Even after college and never again attending the Baptist Tabernacle, 
My membership remained there until after marriage when I joined Sarah's Rural Mars Hill Presbyterian Church near Ackworth. That church did not require baptism, and if it had, I would never have joined it because the meaningless procedure offended me. I believe it was shortly after Sarah and I bought our first little house in DeKalb County that we, having decided we would stay in Atlanta, that we joined First Presbyterian Church. So, how did the evolution from an ignorant teenage boy from Turkey Creek, now feeling a degree of release from those tethers of youth, relate to the open door class and formation of never dying bonds of love and friendship with you and those who have passed from me? The answer is simple, discussions in open door. Far more than any eloquently de delivered sermon caused me to grasp while encouraging further questioning and seeking the truth that emerged into my very being that <coughs> teenage afternoon when I, in real time on Turkey Creek, became one with that exists and hence a oneness with God. Eloquence of preachers and rote recitations of creeds have not and do not accomplish that. When I joined First Prayers, a very prominent member of the church and a person who became a lifelong friend until his death urged me to join the class, of course referring to the then locally famous Berean class, because in the church it was recognized as the class. We opined, he opined, that as a young professional it was the place for me because some of Atlanta's leading businessmen were members and it would be a great source of business. Little did he realize that instead of an invitation, this was in fact a non-invitation because that was not what I sought in a class. These continuing conflicts between desire and availability, conflicts that appeared <coughs> to me to be static noise rather than expressions of spiritual life were not encouraging in our search for a church. Sarah and I joined another class briefly, the Marion Marsh class. Do any of you remember that? The Marion Marsh class later became, uh, and then uh, the bothersome communication motivated us to organize the young couples class that became the open door class. Some have said Sarah and I founded the class. That is a bit of overstatement, but it is true. We began discussions that led to formation of the class. Those discussions were founded on disenchantment with the status quo and what then appeared to be a church run by only old men who had, quote, the class, close quote, only for men. The uh, church was, uh, was at the intersection, I mean the class was at the intersection of corridors from Peachtree and 16th Streets, which was the northern end of the church at that time. 
Some of us remember the common area in the Pioneer section. I know Henry does. Uh, and anybody else remember the old Pioneer section? Oh, thank you, dear lady. Thank you. Overlooked by a semicircular balcony. I have a photograph of that long ago portion of the church where my first real church job was teaching a class of our youth. There was no room for our fledgling class in the then contrasted, contrasted to now much smaller structure of the church. The church gave us access to the old unoccupied Powell House where several young couples, no longer in life, every Saturday brought lunch and worked, cleaning, painting, and otherwise readying the small space for our young couples class. Two singles in that class, Bruce Flanders and Dick Whittier, were early members. One day, Bruce, a gifted lady, noted biologist and plant lover, sought an appointment with me stating that Mr. Dick Whittier asked me to marry him and I want to discuss it with you. She told me of her health problems and that she had discussed it with Dick. In short, they married and remained members of the class for life, even though during the last few years of Dick's life, he lived in a continuing care community at Stone Mountain and could not attend. This sought advice by treating a trusting young couple on such a personal matter as marriage demonstrates the closeness the class enjoyed. It was fulfilling my desire for a genuine spiritual bonding of people instead of simply adhering to ancient dogma. When the Powell House was demolished for church expansion, we were granted permission to move into the church building. For the first seven years of the class, I was sole discussion leader. We gained recognition, and for a long season, we attracted such rotating teachers as, young as acting president of Georgia Tech, city councilman, the position may have been Ben Alderman, a later ambassador to the United Nations, our own Sarah Hill, and others. We even had Columbia Seminary President Dr. Shirley Guthrie, who wrote the new curriculum for the entire national TCUS, the Old Southern Church. The list goes on. In short, we gained prominence. Yet we never lost our interpersonal relationships. Individual couples for years and decades met each Sunday for lunch. We had class retreats at locations in the North Georgia and North Carolina mountains. Henry mentioned one recently. Uh, and seasonal whole class dinners in homes of members many times at the home of members Dr. Earl and Ann Halterwana to celebrate Christmas and other holidays. In later years, we sat as a group at memorial services and delivered eulogies for departed members. Now Sarah and I are the sole survivors of the original class members. We acknowledge the wisdom literature in the Bible and today specifically personify Ecclesiastes that declares, there is a time to be born and a time to die. 
Today, as the person who presided at the birth of the class, I am honored nearly seven decades later to deliver the eulogy for our beloved class. Last Sunday, we celebrated with a delightful brunch in the beautiful classroom, signifying unity, fellowship, growth and wisdom, and age of our class that now passes beyond time and brunch. The class will pass into oblivion, but we trust its depth will live forever, and indeed through time will join in study, biblical and secular effort to discover truth and not be separated over dogma or politics. What was the state of society and the National Presbyterian Church then? What is its state now? And what part did the class and its members play in evolution of the National Presbyterian Church from then to now? And on and on. Having birth of the class outside the church building suggested an answer. We were seekers for truth, and we felt we were seeking beyond truth that the church felt it had already found. And we felt that the promises of Jesus, that the ultimate church had many rooms, included our self-renovated room in the old Powell House. The truth we sought was the truth that would make us free, not truth hobbled by mores of the church, that seemingly left no room for search. Then society was painfully segregated, divided by a line uh, determined by the color of one's skin, and congregations should not permit members to cross that line, even in worship of the same God. The National Presbyterian churches were divided by an imaginary line that was created decades ago by the American Civil War. The Northern Church being the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, and the Southern Church being Presbyterian Church in the United States or PCUS. Our own First Presbyterian Church, a congregation in the Southern Church, had only one pastor and one young assistant, not an associate. I don't believe associates had been invented at that time. And one secretary, but that secretary, anybody remember Arlene Pepper? Okay. Arlene Pepper <coughs> could, from memory, give you instantly the telephone number of nearly every member of the church. And the young assistant, Allen Gardner, who went on to earn a doctorate and become a leader in PCUS, remained a lifelong friend even after Edinburgh and two extended pastorates in Thomasville and Charlotte. On file somewhere at First Presbyterian Church is his eulogy I did at his death. I drove his widow, Bernie, for her first visit to his grave in Charlotte following installation of his memorial stone. Shortly after our joining First Presbyterian, our church underwent forced resignation of its beloved pastor for illness, indeed a condition then looked upon as bad, but today would be treated as illness. With his departing, weekly worship was divided among three interims from two 
prominent educational uh, institutions and a member of the board of the General Assembly of PCUS. The young assistant pastor, Allen, conducted services on the fourth Sunday of the month, and Sarah and I gave him a key to our little house so that he could retreat from the church for quiet preparation of his sermon. We drove him and his family to the train station when they departed to Edinburgh for his advanced degree. Then our local congregation was governed under the bicameral system, a session and a diaconate. The session was small and composed of men only, and they were old, who served until death or moving from the city. With few moving, rarely was a new elder installed. There were no rotating classes of elders as we know them today. I was nominated to the then session and did not accept because I as a young man felt completely out of place with elders, some of whom uh, were old enough to be my grandfather. On Mother's Day, 1953, our newly installed pastor, Harry A. Fifield, preached his first sermon here. He met with me and advised that he was proposing a rotating system in which new elders would form classes to rotate off the session to be replaced by a new class. With that assurance, I accepted, became by far the youngest elder, became a member of the first rotating class, and have since served multiple terms on the session. Dr. Fifield later joked, I hope he was joking, that the only reason I was elected was that simultaneously they adopted a system that would rotate me off. <laughs> this change was only one of the major changes, including building expansions, expansions to include Fifield Hall, first named Fellowship Hall. I'm sure many of you remember when it was Fellowship Hall. During the 23-year tenure of Dr. Fifield. Sarah and I were honored to be in the dedication ceremony when on his retirement, Fellowship Hall was renamed to Fifield Hall. On the national scene, I believe it was 1983, when after more than 100 years, the Northern and Southern Presbyterian churches reunited. And in the background, referred to later, the open door class through a member serving on PCUS committee on assembly operations participated <coughs> in that reunion. Even that reunion suffered and continues to suffer schisms that result in congregations withdrawing and forming another church with national reach, the Presbyterian Church in America, PCA. That schism resulted in lawsuits and a member of open door class represented as counsel a local congregation, Somerville, in PCUS at both the trial court level and the Supreme Court of Georgia to preserve for that congregation its church property. Separation continues even today with evangelicals who seem to have found the answer <coughs> they continue to ignore a simmering fire that across generations appears to burn out of control. As previously stated, the present open door class began 
I believe in 52 or 53 as a young couple's class. The house was located, you know, where it is, where <coughs> Fifield Hall now stands. We moved into the building, have moved three times inside the building. I have a photograph of the old Powell House. In my boxes of photographs, I am striving to recapture and digitize for keeping. I may still find a picture of the room that we prepared, and I hope to be able to do that. <coughs> After inconspicuous birth of our class, we as a class served all levels of the National Presbyterian Church, from local congregation to general assembly. Numerous members served on the session, and I believe we had more members in the church choir and musical sacra choir than any other class. In modern times, and with the help of a retired military officer, uh, a member of our class, we constantly fed through, uh, we led through other <coughs> members uh, we, uh, in, in the food drive. We have for decades served and supported a member at, of uh, Thornwell Office. One member served on Presbyterian Council, chaired Senate of Georgia's Board of Trustees in PCUS, served as Senate's trustee when Georgia and South Carolina became Senate of the Southeast, was commissioner to the General Assembly at PCUS, served on General Assembly's Committee on Assembly Operation, served on the Board of Visitors of Presbyterian College and Senate's trustee for Queens College in Charlotte, and co-chaired the Gateway Committee that changed First Presbyterian from bicameral to unicameral form of government in which the session assumed duties. We were indeed and remain a vital component of the congregational alignments. Some members sang in our musical sacra choir that sang on various international tours, including Salzburg, <coughs> music festival, tours of England and Wales, Prague's first Christmas after coming from under the Soviet Iron Curtain, and at United States Military Cemetery at Omaha Beach at its D-Day remembrance. With passing of members of this class, all those prominent and meaningful historical contributions to the local and national church were passed into the likely irretrievable sphere of the forgotten, but they will forever live, although unrecognized, in the undying and ever-present human spirit. That confident reality adds a realistic, ever-present <laughs> uh, grasp of that which some believe to be the living human spirit, included in what we, without thinking, refer to as eternal life and we're winding up. However, certified, the class will indeed have continued life beyond this closing session. Perhaps not immediately, but it's presently unknown and un unobserved fashion. Sarah and I began this class nearly 70 years ago with love for those who gave birth to the class, and today we, in the departing eulogy for the class, carry each of you and those faithfully departed members involved that accompanies us as our step shortened 
our shadows lengthen, and together we in ever-increasing love walk confidently into the sunset. May the truth we have sought and together still seek join us all in eternal friendship, and as another once said, may you have may you live as long as you love and love as long as you live. For a brief moment, let each individual in silence build his or her own legacy for the class. Then I shall, through persons of our own, Dr. Jim Coomer, poet Hayden Marshall, and an unknown poet, join this class with an undying future. It is not unlike our feelings as we stand at the tomb of the unknowns, remembering with reverence those who brought us where we are and joining those of another unending future. Now for a moment, please silently render your own silent legacy, and I'll close, conclude with the message from our own member, Jim, and then the message from those who never knew us. And now the legacy in a poem written for us by Jim Coomer. It sits ajar, invitingly to those who wander by. Oh, it starts out an open door. It sits ajar, invitingly to those who wander by. And some may cast a curious, cautious look and even wonder why the inauspicious entryway no different from the rest, does nothing to encourage its acceptance of a guest. To those who push the door aside to see what is within, they find 2,000 years of lives and loves <coughs> and friends and kin. They find collective histories that o'er a century span, providing a foundation for an inquiry of man. The room embraces those who are and who they used to be, and space between the two is filled by forms one cannot see. The room is crowded, though the numbers dwindle face by face. The words and questions suffered here float still throughout this space. The stranger who unknowingly stepped forth into the room was caught up in the energy like water through a plume. There was no common destiny. There were few words unsaid. The purpose was to always go to where inquiry led. A meeting of inquiring minds within a sea of knowing was refuge for a hearty group from whom ideas kept flowing. There were few things left unexplored, <coughs> though answers unattained. The value always was the quest not to have the least sustained. 
Although the door still sits ajar, the world within is showing, is slowing, the lives that enemy go there, reluctant in the knowing. <coughs> would, would, would like to keep the door ajar, there still is much to store. And who can know what one will find behind the open door? That's Jim Kumar. Then this one is one of my favorites, and I uh, have requested that where I first saw this poem that it be left to me in her will. The tide recedes but leaves behind bright seashells on the sand. The sun goes down, but gentle warmth lingers on the land. The music stops, and yet it echoes on in sweet refrain. For every joy that passes, something beautiful remains. Hayden Marshall. Then an unknown poet that I wish I could written. I've dreamed many dreams that never came true. I've seen them vanish at dawn, but I've realized enough of my dreams, thank God, to make me want to dream on. I prayed many prayers when no answer came, though I waited patient and long, but answers came to enough of my prayers to make me keep praying on. I've trusted many a friend that failed and left me to weep alone. But I found enough of my friends true blue to make me keep trusting on. I've sown some seeds that fell by the way for the birds to feed upon. But I've held enough golden sheaves in my hand to make me keep sowing on. I've drained the cup of disappointment and pain and gone many days without song. But I've sipped enough nectar from the roses of life to make me want to live on. Unknown author. And now we live in memory, beautifully and briefly defined by J.M. Derry. God gave us memory so that we can have roses in December. And lastly, from Sarah and me to each of you, and in spirit to each departed member, you constitute a beautiful and fragrant rose in our abundant bouquet in December of our lives. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>